Welcome to Art of the Kickstart, your source for crowdfunding campaign success. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president of Inventus Partners, the top full-service turnkey product development and crowdfunding marketing agency in the world. We have helped startups raise over $100 million for our clients since 2010. Each week, I'll interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level with crowdfunding. Art of the Kickstart is honored to be sponsored by Backerkit and The Gadget Flow. Backerkit makes software that crowdfunding project creators use to survey backers, organize data, and manage orders for fulfillment by automating your operations and helping you print and ship faster. The Gadget Flow is a product discovery platform that helps you discover, save, and buy awesome products. It is the ultimate buyer's guide for luxury gadgets and creative gifts. Now let's get on with the show. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining me. If you would, give my audience a little bit of your background. Thanks, Roy. Uh, let's see, Steve Blank. I currently teach entrepreneurship at Stanford in the engineering school. I'm an adjunct professor at Berkeley in the business school, and I'm a senior fellow at Columbia University. Spent the first 21 years of my career doing eight startups uh, and uh, box score for uh, IPOs and two craters so deep they left their own iridium layer. Yeah. But that, those uh, failures actually led to something called the Lean Startup. So the Lean Startup Moving, something that Eric Reese kind of coined the book around, uh, obviously, of teachings and understanding what, we, what was going on there. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about the Lean Startup Movement and how they can actually use that for their startup and why they should? Sure. The Lean Startup uh, was a kind of response to what I did when I did startups, which is simply wrote a plan, raised money, built stuff as per the plan, shipped it, and then mostly no one wanted to buy it. Yeah. And, and we were always kind of surprised. And in hindsight, the answer was, is we were operating like we were a large company with known customers, known channel, known pricing, where in fact, startups are, don't have any knowns at all. Large companies get to execute a known business model. Startups, we search for a business model, but we didn't have any tools right. or even thinking. So the Lean Startup has three parts. It says, why don't you write down all your hypotheses, which is a university fancy term for guests. Yep. What's your guess about who the customer is, what's the pricing, what's your product or service, you know, how are you going to distribute it? What are your costs, etc.? And that's nice, but let's use the business model canvas from Alexander Oswald to do this. But the second part is my invention. Let's get out of your building and actually test those hypotheses. We want to actually do A-B tests. We want to personally interview customers. We want to figure out if we can go from customer discovery to customer validation to get to what we call product market fit. Right. We think we have a first deep understanding that people will grab this thing out of our hands. If we could deliver. We don't know if we could scale, but at least we got early quote trash. Yeah. Favorite buzzword. And then the third part was Eric Reese's uh, observation that in the 21st century, everybody should be building their products agilely, that is, iteratively and incrementally. So they're building every possible feature. Let's build it, and as we get out of the building of customer development, we can test these things called minimum viable products. That is, what's the minimum feature set that will get us the most reaction? most learning, most revenue, most whatever at a certain point in time. Day one, it might be a PowerPoint or a web slide. Month three, it might be a, a Olympic web app that kind of works. And so those three components, business model design, customer development, agile engineering, is when you hear the word lean startup, actually has some thinking and, and a methodology behind it. And the goal is to make startups fail us. Startups tended to fail us because we 
confusing a religious activity, which is, I believe, yep. with facts from customers, right. which you could very quickly discover. Yeah. No, I mean, it's certainly interesting. Certainly in our industry, in the crowdfunding side, we hope that companies fail upwards is how we kind of point it, where there's actually learnings from it when they launch their product. Hopefully there's an audience for it. We did enough pre-campaign work to find an audience, get some engagement early on. But once they truly launch a product out there, it's public. And, you know, you, as you mentioned in your speech earlier that, you know, basically innovation kind of stops at that point. But there is an opportunity for them to at least get feedback from their customers. Right. And, and this is where you and I might disagree, I don't know, is that companies are confusing crowdfunding with learning. You know, when you crowdfund something, unless it's changed since I understood it, you basically have to deliver what you said you were going to deliver. That means you're now in execution mode. Right. Learning is stopped until you're done delivering. In my world, I tell people, crowdfunding is great, but you want to make sure you're done with enough early learning before you kind of say, here's what I'm going to deliver, because you're better to go deliver that. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's probably one of the biggest things that we see with founders is that not only do they fail to deliver on time, you know, more than 95% of the time, you know, because they think their timelines are perfect, but many of them are first time entrepreneurs, right? They have to learn that entire ecosystem of what it takes to bring a product to market. Right. And, and sometimes crowdfunding becomes the goal rather than delivering products and services that customers desperately want and, right. and enjoy. And, and so that's a trap I've also seen entrepreneurs fall into is yep. chasing the money rather than chasing, yep. gee, the money is a vehicle to grow something that it's going to be spectacular when it, when it succeeds at scale. Absolutely. Yeah, we've worked with some companies now that have pivoted multiple times during our pre-campaign marketing, all based on the data that we're seeing from the customers, potential customers that are coming in. So it sounds like your pre-campaign marketing is actually a, a version of Lean. Absolutely. That you're actually teaching these customers how to get out of the building. And, it is. And, and the marketing is actually giving them some feedback that says, gee, before you actually... Push the button here. Perhaps you ought to listen to this. Customer. Absolutely, because you, we're usually on the hook for it as well, since we're the marketing agency behind it. You know, if we're the one putting out the message, but nobody is responding to it, we should have done our homework beforehand to find out what the actual crowd truly wants in terms of that product fit. I know you've talked in a few different entre- uh, a few different interviews that you know entrepreneurship is not a job and it's a calling. You want to touch on that? Sure, and this is for the founders, not yeah. for early employees or not for later employees. But being a founder is actually nothing like being an accountant or a coder. Or whatever. I mean, you might have been those things. Yeah. But when you become a founder, you're more like an artist. Yep. You know, a painter or a sculptor or a musician. You see things other people don't. Yep. You hear things other people don't. You see something far out there and everybody goes, what? And, you know, you're, that's when we coin the word visionary. You see these things. And, and what truly makes successful founders is not only you could see them but you can convince other people, early employees, early investors, early customers. And so your job as a, as a, it's not a nine to five job. Being a founder for a company is a 24 seven activity. It's all in game. Yep. And, uh, and a lot of people don't understand that. They yeah. just like just, and you can decide you want to be a small business entrepreneur, open yeah. a restaurant or you have a web consulting firm and have a normal lifestyle. Yep. But if you want to be Facebook, Google, Twitter, or something scalable, that's different. You're Beethoven or Michelangelo, my friend, or are yeah. going to die. Yeah. And by the way, like most artists, most of the stuff you do will fail. Yeah. Right? Not every painting is up and running. Absolutely. You know, you talked about uh, entrepreneurs potentially doing apprenticeships. You still think that that's a, a factor that, you know, young, aspiring entrepreneurs should be doing? 
So, you know, uh, when I was an entrepreneur, that was the only way to get data. Yeah. There wasn't even basic information. Um, nowadays, all the information is available everywhere. But what's not available is experience. And over time, experience kind of leads to wisdom sometimes. Usually. Uh, at least it leads to practice. Yep. Right? Um, yep. You know, if you think you're Steve Jobs on day one, for God's sake, go out and do it. Um, but the odds are you'll probably do better having, you know, worked at somebody else's stick for a while and yeah. said, well, I, I could do better than this. Yeah. Uh, usually that's what makes great entrepreneurs. Do you think that failure is good when launching a company? Failure sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whoever tells you failure is fine. Obviously, he hasn't failed and hasn't failed big enough. No, failure is terrible, but learning is great. Yeah. And so if you're capable of learning from failure, you know, the first couple of steps in most most entrepreneurs is step one, if you fail, blame everybody else. First denial, then blame everybody else, and then maybe you'll kind of accept some of it. And then the, the real key about learning from failure is, so what we have done different, not how to blame other people differently. What did I do or did not do yep. that I won't do next time? And so... And our entrepreneurial culture, if you're in the right cluster, actually rewards that kind of learning. Yeah. You're going for an interview and someone says, what happened to your last company? The first words out of your mouth is, well, let me tell you what I learned. Yeah. Not like, oh, boy, did I fail. Let right. me tell you what I learned. Yeah. You know, I didn't understand X or Y, or I was chasing the money, or I didn't understand customers, 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 or I didn't understand the goal was to get acquired, or whatever it is. You need to actually process that. And if you can't have that conversation, it was a wasted failure. Yeah. And as I said, I, I used to go through all the, nah, it ain't happening. Two is my co-founder's fault. Three yeah. is, you know, then finally you kind of get to a point where, you know. Self-reflection, oh, so right? So yeah, suck it up and own it. And then yep. you'll be better next time. You'll make different mistakes, but you'll, you won't make those. In your uh, presentation at Web Summit, um, you mentioned that potentially looking at founders that grew up in slightly dysfunctional families was a unique trait to have. You want to touch on that? Yeah, it's, it's probably the cruelest training ground one could imagine, but sure. actually the most effective. The survivors of dysfunctional families happen to have a common skill set of shutting down everything except for survival. That is shutting down noise, shutting down distractions. And if you think about what the early days of the startup are, it's like living in a dysfunctional family. You never know what's coming at you. Yep. You know, everybody else is kind of melting down and you're going normal day at home. Yeah. Uh, you know, the only bad news is for those founders is when the company starts scaling and things start going well, they throw hand grenades into their own company to keep the chaos going. Really? That's too bad. You know, obviously, we like our companies to have predictability at a certain point, right? But obviously, so when it's... the upside and downside. Yeah. You know, I've, you know, you've mentioned like the, the three steps from going to a startup to like a large company and the first one being search, you know, where you're trying to find that repeatable thing. And then you build... And then you scale. Right. And I think, you know, we're currently in that, that build to, to grow phase. And it's tough because everything you talk about in terms of, oh, now we need to think about HR and, you know, really honing in our culture and having obviously all of our business practices written down. Like it's, it's great to graduate into that. But can you talk about a little bit of that chaos in between? The problem is, is that most founders, because they're founders, love the search phase and they hate the paperwork. We yeah. don't do no stinking paperwork. Right. But it turns out companies go through some magic numbers. You know, eight people is a magic number, 45 is the next magic number, yep. 160. It turns out the military is the Roman legions. Actually structure on those side organizations because we know that, uh, you know, Band of Brothers at, at kind of one right. size, uh, uh, 160 people is called Dunbar's number where you no longer recognize 
anybody over 160 people, it's right. the size of a tribe. Right. And so that's when you tend to divisionalize in a company. So there are kind of things we've learned over time, which every startup seems to forget. Yeah. If you have smart investors, they'll say, oh, let me tell you what's going on now. You're no longer a startup or now you need... Because as a founder, I never could quite understand why the stuff I did as a founder in year one was actually bad in year three. Yeah. You want to see a world-class example of, of bad behavior like that, take a look at Uber. I mean, it wasn't like all those dirty tricks they did wasn't what every startup should probably do as sure. long as they're not breaking the law. But to do that at scale, now you've got tens of thousands of employees modeling their culture yep. on that. That's probably not a good idea. Yeah, it can be difficult. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You've mentioned before that entrepreneurship is a team sport. Um, I know when we look to hire people and bring people on, we looked for those qualities in terms of whether or not they actually were part of a team, whether they're part of fraternity or sorority. Can you touch on that? It's very funny. Entrepreneurship uh, as a startup is a social construct as, as much as it is an engineering achievement or a business achievement. And we kind of disconnect that, you know, sports teams with coding. But early on, I'd rather trade sometimes, not always, team players for the smartest coders or the world's best salespeople. Yeah. I'd rather have people who take one for the team, or yeah. at least, you know, we know this is going to be an all-nighter for the next four days. Right. We've got to get a product out the door, there's a trade show coming up or something else. Now, you can't keep that up. That's the big idea. Eventually, you need scale and consistency, and I will trade off, you know, team players for world-class contributors sure. are on a nine-to-five circuit. But you need to understand what that balance in the, early, point. Yeah. in the early first 10 or 20 people, man, I'll go for team players who, who yeah. will just understand what the goal is. Yep. Yeah, and that's certainly where we were early on. A couple quick questions for you. Who's your favorite entrepreneur throughout history? Elon Musk. Have you met Elon? He was my intern in his first job in Silicon Valley. Oh my goodness. Uh, favorite book? Uh, Clint Christensen's Innovator's Book. Favorite travel spot? Uh, favorite travel spot. Oh, that's a hard one. I don't know. New Zealand. Uh, what do you fear? Not learning anymore. Uh, last question. What does the future of crowdfunding look like? Well, I hope you guys are going to invent That's our hope. That's our hope. Well, I appreciate your time, Steve. It's been great. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show about building a business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, awesome. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com and tell us all about it. There you'll find additional information about past episodes, our Kickstarter guide to crushing it. And of course, if you love this episode a lot, leave us a review at artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes. It helps more inventors, entrepreneurs, and startups find this show and helps us get better guests to help you build a better business. If you need more hands-on crowdfunding strategy advice, please feel free to request a quote on inventuspartners.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week.